Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, but haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Oh, good morning. I'm Kate, if you haven't met me. And something we missed in the commissioning is that I think I need my picture taken off the wall because I'm no longer in the Northern Territory. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Let's pray. Merciful God, Guide us in your truth and teach us. For you are God our Saviour, and our hope is in you all day long. Amen. Have you ever been lost? I was lost just last week. I was given tickets to the Loom at the Exhibition Centre, and I'd never been there before. And by the time we came up out of the retail precinct where the car park is, we were hopelessly lost. We pulled out our phones, but it was useless. The little blue dot just kept jumping around, it couldn't work out where we were because of all the buildings and the other signals and everything like that. And um, so we thought what we would do is we would just start walking in a direction and maybe it would work itself out. Um, But we walked about 100 metres and the whole map flipped and it said, no, no, don't go that way, go this way. And so on and so on. It was hopeless. Maybe a compass would have been useful at such a moment. But even a compass can lose its polarity and start giving dodgy readings Advice from Silver, the world-famous compass company, says it is very important to check the compass every time it's used since polarisations do happen. It's as important as checking any part of your survival gear since your life may well depend on it. Well, in this passage from Luke, the crowd have lost their bearings. And Jesus' assessment of their situation is pretty bleak. Three times he warns them, You're heading in the wrong direction. If you want to live, repent. In effect, your compass polarity is right out and your life depends on it. It might sound obvious, but you actually only need a compass when you're in unfamiliar terrain. If you know where you're going, you don't look at a compass. I'm following God into new terrain in this new role. But I know that some of you studying here at Ridley 
The decision to be here is also a decision to follow God into new terrain. And like the crowd following Jesus back then, we are prone to losing our bearings. In this fallen world where there's so many things competing for our focus, the more I've dwelt on this passage, the more grace I find in Jesus' words to this lost crowd. Repentance is God's gift to correct the drifting polarity of his people. These verses in Luke offer us a life-giving way to check our bearings and restore our compass. So let's dive in. I'm going to start with the there and then of the text, and then I'm going to bring it forward to the here and now of how it applies to us today. In these verses, Jesus is teaching his disciples in the presence of a really large crowd. So in verse 1, Luke tells us that there were some present who told Jesus, by the way, who is from Galilee and who has recently set out resolutely towards Jerusalem, they tell Jesus a horrific story about what's happened to some Galileans in Jerusalem. It actually reminds me of when I was pregnant. It's like people just can't help themselves telling you their horror stories of someone (laughs) they know, as if I wasn't scared enough. It's Pastoral Care 101, just no. Anyway, it sounds like Pilate, in keeping with his general disdain for the Israelites and their religious practices, has ordered some Galileans to be killed while they are in the temple in the very act of making their sacrifices to God. Their blood has ended up mingled with the blood of the animals they brought to sacrifice. It's a horrific story. In effect, they're saying to Jesus, don't go. Jerusalem is a really dangerous place for people like you. And maybe it would be almost comic if it weren't so tragic. At this point, Jesus has already twice predicted his death in Jerusalem at the hands of religious authorities. And he's only just finished warning them not to be afraid of those who can kill the body but do no more. I wonder how the crowd expected Jesus to respond. It's really clear that although Jesus had the coordinates of his destination firmly in focus, the crowd have completely misread his mission. And Jesus' response gives us a sense of how serious and how seriously they've lost their bearings. Three times in nine verses, he repeats himself with this message, repent or you too will perish. In the first refrain, Jesus responds to their story about the Galileans' suffering. He says their conclusions are looking in the wrong direction. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. In effect, Jesus is saying, why are you looking at them? Do you think that if you can somehow diagnose their fault in this matter, It'll make you safe. Your judgment is as off about them as it is about yourselves. Remember when I said I came not for the healthy but the sick? You're all sick. In the second refrain, in verses 4 and 5, Jesus gives them a different example. A tower falling down. This might be a modern day version of what insurers call an act of God. But Jesus' question is nearly the same. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. 
the people's compass bearings are almost flipped 180. They're so disoriented that they're attributing evil to God. The Lord of life himself is right with them, but they can't see it because their focus is on all the wrong things. And it's like Jesus is saying, when you hear of horrors and suffering in the world, let them shock you into turning to God because that is the way to be safe. This section of Luke is full of Jesus' critique of the hypocrisy of Israel. It's clear that the teachers of God's law have lost their bearings completely. Their priorities are upside down. They wash the outside of their crockery, but they neglect the inside, like their hearts are all yucky. Their beliefs are askew. They're so diligent in tithing, they even tithe a tenth of their herbs, but they neglect justice and the love of God. Their values are all wrong. They love the best seats in the synagogue and they lack generosity. These are people who identify as the people of God, but they don't know God. They're like a compass that has its polarity reversed. Their worldview has become so polarised by the magnetism of a fallen world. They teach God's laws, but they don't know the God about whom they teach. So in the third refrain, verses 6 to 9, Jesus attempts to reorient them with this story of a fruitless fig tree in a vineyard. And three things really stood out to me from this parable. Firstly, the people's belief in a God who's quick to judge the undeserving stands in stark opposition to the mercy of this gardener of grace who's reluctant to allow the tree to perish even despite its manifest failure to bear fruit. The fig tree is probably a picture of the fruitlessness, faithful, faithlessness of Israel, but it could also apply to an individual. Either way, the story puts the focus squarely on the gardener of grace, whose advocacy is entirely undeserved, generous, at personal cost. I mean, why waste good compost on a tree that stopped fruiting? <laughs> Why put more work into aerating the soil for a fruitless tree? Jesus' story puts the spotlight on the priorities, values and beliefs of the gardener. A second thing that stood out from the parable for me, the reprieve for the fruitless tree is temporary. If it does not change, it will yet perish. Thirdly, there's this great reversal of the people's warning to Jesus at the start in verse 1, standing completely reversed by verse 9 into a warning to those who are not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus' message is in triplicate and it's pretty clear. Repentance is God's gift to correct the drifting polarity of his people. So don't delay. If you want to live, turn back to God. If not now in the face of these frightening and horrific events, then when? If not now, then when? The question that resonates for us today too, doesn't it? The title of this sermon is not my words. They're the words of Alexander Knoll, the Dean of St Paul's Cathedral, in 1563, when the Great Plague struck London and a quarter of London's population died. 
He preached on the need for repentance, repeatedly asking his listeners, if not now, then when? Here's a taste of his sermon. Therefore, let us learn by this affliction to mourn for our sins, to hate and forsake our sin. For when shall we mourn for our sins if not in this time of mourning? When shall we forsake sin in our life if not now, when life is forsaking us? When shall we understand that this life is as a vapour, as a bubble rising on the water if not now in the passing and vanishing away of it? Like Alexander Knowles' congregation, we've been living through a frightening pandemic. Over six million people have died of COVID in the last two years. But maybe climate change scares you more than COVID. Rising seas, global warming, subsequent threat to food security. For me, there's actually a pull towards anxiety almost every time I tune in to world affairs. The US is certainly headed for depression. The markets are headed for a crash. There's a war in Ukraine. The people in Afghanistan are suffering. The price of living's on the rise and so on and so on. And in all of these issues, what I hear is an ever-present conversation about who's to blame. Is COVID God's judgment on the world? To what extent, if so? And regardless of your thoughts on that question, if you would not turn to God now, in the face of such frightening times, then when? So my first thought of application is that comfort in frightening times isn't found in the blame game. It's found in God. Yet like Jesus' original hearers, we also long for explanations that will put our mind at ease. Of course, as enlightened people, we would never dream of trying to make a straight line between um, what people deserve and what they get, would we? But where is this tendency to blame coming from? Since the moment of the fall, instead of saying, sorry, God, people have tried to find comfort in pointing the finger at someone they think is a worse offender, trying fruitlessly to shift the blame from ourselves. So as I've dwelt on this, I came to the insight that while we look for scientific explanations of suffering, my sense is today that we're still longing to explain people's suffering, just as much as anyone in history probably ever has. Because in our disoriented brains, we think if we can just explain it, if we can just find out what they did wrong or find some fault in them that explains and justifies their misfortune, we will comfort ourselves that it will never happen to us. But that's not where comfort is found. Comfort is found in God. For the last decade as I've worked in the NT, I've seen a lot of suffering. Sitting with those in trauma and suffering or in the presence of death is intensely uncomfortable. And at, that, at those times, if we're looking for the comfort of certitude, it's found in turning to God. The kind of turnaround that changes our thinking. It's fruitless to seek comfort in anxious times by blaming the hapless. Let us instead turn to the God of all comfort. When Jesus said repent, he meant literally turn around, a reorientation. Repentance is God's gift, so turn to God 
for true comfort. And if not now, then when? Takes us to my second thought for application in the here and now, which is about how supremely comforting God is. When we're feeling lost, frightened by the world or anxious. See, of all the characters in this story, I relate to the fruitless fig tree. So I'm deeply moved by this gardener of grace. Who is this gardener of grace who advocates for the fruitless fig, who gives of his time and energy to till the soil for the wretched tree, who doesn't consider giving more nutrients to be throwing good after bad, who bargains for time even though the owner has already written the tree off. In my previous work in Arnhem Land, I talked with a lot of NGOs and I can tell you this gardener's actions fly completely in the face of best practice aid and development work, giving more resources to failed projects. Acutely conscious of our shortcomings and failings in Western culture, we expend enormous energy in the concealment of our vulnerability, just hoping no one will notice that we're an imposter in the vineyard. Yet father-like, he tends and spares us, as it says in the old hymn. Father-like, he tends and spares us. This image of the gardener of grace who treats us with the reverse of what we deserve is like a foreshadowing of what Jesus is heading so resolutely to Jerusalem to do on the cross. While we were still sinners, he died for us. So here is the most compelling of all reasons to repent, to turn to God. Our God is full of grace, giving love and justice and care to the undeserving. Fear and defensiveness are signs that my compass has lost its bearing. Because this triplicate warning of Jesus is explicit. The right response to my sin and to horrors in the world is to turn towards God. The gardener of grace who is slow to anger, full of love. To daily admit my culpability in the brokenness of this world and trust God for the way forward. Peter Adam, the former Ridley College principal, is a great advocate of repenting every day. Perhaps you've also heard him talk about this. Um, but just the other week here in the courtyard, he reminded me that, forgive me, Lord, is the only prayer that we can pray where the answer is always yes, immediately, every time. So the axe may be at the root of the tree, but there is yet time. The sign of COVID-19 means that Jesus has not yet returned. Let us repent and ask for mercy. Climate change is a sign that Jesus has not yet returned because it's not going to be happening when he comes back, right? Let us repent and ask for mercy. A dear friend in Christ died this week. We're painfully reminded of our own mortality Death, too, is a sign that Jesus has not yet returned. Will we not turn to the gardener of grace for comfort? Let me finish. May this passage about a whole bunch of people who identified as God's people like us but were actually way off track be a warning to us. 
about how easy it is to lose our bearings. For our compass to be pulled out of alignment by the magnetism of this fallen world, repentance is God's gift to correct people's drifting polarity. And please notice that genuine repentance only bears fruit because it's not just a feeling or a thought. It has to be embodied, lived out in action. So let us draw near to the gardener of grace in repentance, turning to our God who desires mercy, not sacrifice, for comfort in times of fear in a broken world and for help when we feel lost or we're heading down fruitless paths. And as we reflect on the urgency and repetition of Jesus' words in these verses, let me finish with the question, if not now, then when? I'm going to pray. Please join me. Merciful God, our Saviour, our hope is in you all day long. Remember your mercy and love. Forgive us our sins. Cleanse us and change us as we look to you. According to your great love, remember us. For you, Lord, are good. Amen. Thank you.